This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Slate's Working Podcast is sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. And try it free for 30 days by visiting gotomeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. And by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy, risk-free, and most of all, enjoyable. You can try on five frames in the comfort of your own home with the Home Try-On program, and right now get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice when you go to warbyparker.com working. That's warbyparker.com working. Welcome to Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I'm Aisha Harris. I cover culture at Slate, and I'll be your host for this third season of the show. If you missed the first two seasons of the show, hosted by David Plotz and Adam Davidson, respectively, you should definitely check them out. This season, some of our guests will be inspired by the ideas you've sent us. In fact, this first episode came from one of those listener recommendations. Like you, I was curious about a job that we often see performed by very, very good-looking actors in medical dramas on TV. So uh, what's your name and what do you do? My name is Alex Chero and I am a resident. I um, don't know much about what that world is like. Mostly my experience is based off of Grey's Anatomy. I've been watching it for 10 years. <laughs> and so I guess what I like to know is like, what does being a medical resident really mean? Like, are you a doctor? Where are you in your education? Explaining residency to people is sort of like explaining Game of Thrones to somebody who's never watched it. Like you have to do a huge amount of world building uh, just to be able to give anybody any kind of semblance of a plot. I don't even watch Game of Thrones, but that's a sense I get from looking over my husband's shoulder when he's watching it. I should back up and say I am a physician. I graduated from um, medical school. And when you graduate from medical school, you sign on to be part of an apprenticeship, a paid apprenticeship. And that apprenticeship lasts between three and seven years depending on what your subspecialty is that you go into. I am a second-year resident. Uh, I'm doing a somewhat atypical training process in that I am getting board certified in two things at the same time. So I'm getting board certified in internal medicine. That's generally speaking a three-year residency. And I'm also getting board certified in dermatology, which is a four-year residency, and together I will do the two of them together in five years. Uh, I've completed my intern year, which is the first year of uh, anybody's residency, and I did that in internal medicine, um, and now I'm continuing on through the rest of my residency. So uh, where do you work? 
I work at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in uh, Boston. What is the environment like and and what makes that hospital uh, different or special uh, compared to other hospitals? It is an academic medical institution, which means that there it is filled with trainees. So there are interns, there are residents, and there are fellows everywhere, many, many young people. And then there are attendings who often have um, gone through many, many years of training and subspecialty training. Um, and so what it, it really is is a tertiary care hospital for people with either rare or uh, very critical conditions. So you're in a call room right now. What what is it like in there, and what what goes on in there? A lot has changed about uh, about residency. So people don't don't for the most part spend more than thirty hours in the hospital at one time, ex- except on very specific rotations. Um, so the call rooms are used for those rotations. People will spend a few hours sleeping in them. Um, on my night rotations that I had over the past year as an intern, if I was lucky, especially on um, services where there's two interns on at night covering, you know, a hundred patients, if if there was a respite between two and four a.m., then I maybe I would sleep for a couple of hours. That happened once or twice. Um, I'll sometimes use the call rooms to call back patients in. Um, and uh, I think people who are on for longer hours at a time, which I'll be looking forward to next year, will spend at least a few hours in the call room. But they're pretty sad. It's really sad to wake up in one of these places. You have no idea what time it is. You feel like you're in a casino uh, and you leave here and <laughs> you almost feel like you never, even if you slept for like six hours, you feel like you never left the hospital, which you really didn't. You feel like you really never went to bed. How many hours a week are you are you working at this point in your residency? So right now, I, there is a pretty stark contrast between the outpatient dermatology side of things and the inpatient internal medicine side of things. But it also depends on what service you're on within each of them, respectively. So if I was on a consult dermatology service, I might expect to work 60 to 80 hours a week. But on the outpatient side, I'm working more like uh 40 to 60 hours a week. And last year, as a, an internal medicine intern, I was working 80 hours a week. And most of my residents, my co-residents who are in the internal medicine residency program right now um, are working 80 or I can't really say that they're working more since technically we're not allowed to work more. But if it was if it were legal for them to work more, then they might be working more than 80 hours a week. Hmm. Can you describe what a typical day for you now that you are a resident is like? Absolutely. So a typical day for me right now, uh, it's different depending on on whether I was uh, an internal medicine resident on the internal medicine side or whether it was on the uh, dermatology side. Right now I'm on the dermatology side of things, um, but I still have my internal medicine continuity clinic. I know this is very confusing. I have an outpatient primary care practice, and then otherwise, for the most part, I'm uh, seeing primarily dermatology patients in clinic. That looks like me waking up at 6.30 or so uh, going to didactics because we're still learning and training. Uh, and that's where we learn about dermatology. I learn about that for about an hour and then I do clinics for throughout the rest of the day. And what did to like what happened today? Could you kind of walk me through like what exactly happened today? Was there anything kind of surprising or um, interesting that happened during your day today? Sure. <laughs> it's hard because I'm trying to figure out. So um, I taught before I did this interview, I talked to my 
program director to make sure it was okay to do it. And then I also talked to the head of communications for the hospital. Her recommendations were that I try my best to not allude to specific dates, times, or patients unless I change significant information about that patient. So I can sort of give you a generic day, but maybe not today. Sure. Uh, so on a, on a generic day, we can well, imagine this was this was this past week. I spent the morning in didactics, and I learned about how to describe skin and skin characteristics. And then I spent the morning in clinic, in a dermatology clinic, seeing general dermatology patients and characterizing their skin findings and um, writing notes for the attendings who then, you know, proceed to change a lot of the notes because I still am learning. So they might... (laughs) correctly uh, acknowledge that I don't yet know all that there is to know about dermatology. And then in the afternoon, I might go to my primary care clinic. Uh, and in my primary care clinic, I would see what somebody would see at any primary care clinic office. So maybe a patient comes in and she wants STI screening. So she's afraid that she has either gonorrhea or chlamydia. And then another patient who's been hospitalized a few times and also has a diagnosis of cancer and is coming in after a recent hospitalization. And I would spend some time going through all of her medications with her and making sure she understands exactly what happened during her last hospitalization. I might see a few urgent care patients who are coming in with an upper respiratory infection or poison ivy or something. And then it really depends. In my particular clinic, it's the clinic for the hospital, and the patients tend, for the most part, to be quite sick. And so they'll often be managed by many, many subspecialists. And so I'm spending a lot of my time coordinating care with those subspecialists. And then at the end of the day, if I have time, I'll go through all of the results for all of my outpatient dermatology patients, for all my outpatient uh, medicine patients, and then I'll call patients back uh, and give them results. So for the patient who was afraid she was pregnant, I'll call her back and let her know that she's not pregnant. For the patient who I was afraid was anemic, I'll call her back and let her know that she's her blood counts are so low that she actually needs to come to the emergency department. And then I would write a note to the emergency department to let them know to expect her there. And then after that, if I have time, uh, especially now that I'm on dermatology where the schedule is a little bit easier, it's expected that I should be learning some dermatology and some medicine. Um, and so I'd spend some time trying to learn as much as possible about some of the people I saw that day. And then I'll go home. What time of the year or day tends to be busiest for you? I imagine that, you know, sometimes like we just had 4th of July. So, you know, there's lots of people playing with fireworks. Like, is there any time of the year when you can expect that you will be working way more hours than normal? I think that there's definitely an increase in the census in the hospital, which definitely increases the workload for all of the inpatient services in the winter when the flu season is bad. And this year, the flu season in particular was bad. The flu vaccine didn't work very well. I think it had like an 18% efficacy rate, which is way lower than usual. So we had a lot of flu patients, and they just filled up the ICUs. They filled up the floor. We had a few patients who got very sick. A few years ago, some patients died of the flu. So it can be very, very serious. And I'd say that overall, the census is a little bit higher then. But it's hard to it's hard to really know over the course of this year, it seems like we've been in extreme census, which means that we're, you know, opening up extra floors of the hospital. We've been in extreme census, I feel like, half the time that I've been here. It's really hard to predict. And what happens if you get sick? Like are you are you allowed to take a sick day or like how does how does that work? Because I imagine if you're on call or if you're always yeah. working, you you can't 
you're not allowed to take as many days off as some people some people in other professions might yeah. be able to. It actually, I think actually to the to most programs credit and to my programs credit, there's usually a designated rotation that most people have for two weeks in which they are the sick call for people. In the winter, everybody's sick call, all those people who are waiting to be called in for the other residents who are sick, they're almost always called in because they're people with the flu or one year there was norovirus, which is gross and diarrhea and awful, and that pulled in everybody from sick call. But there are people for sick call. And because a lot of the people Patients that we work with have had bone marrow transplants or in chemotherapy or have many comorbidities. It would be a harm to them to come in. So unless unless what you have is like allergies or something that you know you can sort of work through, then you'll call in sick. I think I called in sick once last year, um, which is actually surprising. You, you're around so many sick people, but for the most part, I feel like my husband got sick a lot more than I did. I think I brought home all of – I was just this huge vector bringing home all of my illness to him. Yeah. This episode of Working is sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. Think about the time, the money, and hassle it takes to hold a meeting. My recommendation? Meet your clients and coworkers online with Citrix GoToMeeting because it's a smarter way to meet. GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to, wherever you are. Because with GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone without travel expenses or hassle of traffic. Your team can join by clicking a link. No signups, no speed bumps. Turn on your webcam, and with HD quality, it's like being in the room. You can share screens to present, review, and get feedback in real time. Because with GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you're seeing so your team can get on the same page and get going. Try it free for 30 days, nothing to lose. Visit gotomeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. Do it now and have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's gotomeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. Could you describe for me like what a bad day yeah. might look for you? Yeah. Like a particularly bad day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can think back to bad days um, this past year, especially um, during my intern year. And I think at the beginning of the year, a lot of my bad days would revolve around my just feeling incompetent. But I can think about a, a sort of pseudo-constructed day from uh, this past year in which I was on an oncology service. And uh, in the morning, I went to see some of my patients, uh, especially on the service that I was on. They were very, very young. A lot of them were in their 30s with metastatic cancer. And I would go to see them in the morning. So I, what an intern does is they they wake up at, well, you know, when I think at 5 and they come in at 6. And they uh, I would go through all the data for my patients for the for that day and then I would pre-round on all my patients so I go and I see all the patients uh, individually and if one of them was really sick overnight then I had to spend special attention to them and talk to them so for, in particular I had one patient in her 30s and she was really ill and I spend a lot of time talking to her and her family about the fact that she was getting sicker and then I might go see another patient in his 40s and I would talk to his family about what uh, whether or not uh, they wanted to get uh, some invasive procedure that day that would make the patient feel better and then go and see my other patients. We'd round as a team, so the attending and my residents and um, me and my co-intern would round as a team. And then the rest of the day I spent getting a lot of things done for all of those patients 
So coordinating care with all the other subspecialists who are consulting, making sure that all the tests that are supposed to get done for those patients get done. And then if it's a really hard day, that what that probably means is also emotionally that I'm spending a lot of time with really sick patients in in either goals of care meetings with the patients where we're talking about uh, what they what they want to pursue in terms of treatment, whether they uh, want to go home with hospice. And when you're talking about really young patients, that can be especially difficult. And on those days, on days like that, I would just, um, yeah, it was just, it was a lot. It was a lot emotionally to take. Um, Yeah. So it sounds like a bad day for you um, involves a lot of very sick patients and especially young sick patients. What was your kind of experience or understanding of death before you were a student and how has that changed now that you are just in it every day? Yeah. I, I mean, so, so dramatically, so dramatically. So when I was in medical school, I had never seen somebody die. Uh, And by the time I finished my intern year, I had probably pronounced 10 people dead, if not more, and had many more of my patients die than that. Uh, Patients who uh, we sent home with hospice, a lot of them were really young. Um, And then in addition to that, you see the sort of process of dying, both in an acute setting, which is a code, and a chronic setting, which is somebody who has a chronic illness. Um, So seeing somebody who's chronically ill and pass away is really awful and it can be really frustrating and hard i think especially because until you until you're working in a hospital your experience with a hospital as a, a young otherwise healthy person is uh, to come to the hospital once for one thing and then leave and never come back until 70 years later um, but for a lot of people in the hospital uh when we're catching them, it's a time slice, and they're going to be coming back multiple times. And it's it's unclear whether they're going to be coming back 10 more times before they pass away or two more times before they pass away. But our whole team generally acknowledges that if they've been in and out of the hospital over the past year, that they're likely going to die with by the end of this year, you know, depending on what their condition is. And I think that can be really, really hard to sort of mentally wrap your head around, especially as a medical student, um, to see people seem so callow and to see people seem so callous about death. But I think that sort of acknowledging that is helpful in terms of having good discussions with people um, because they might see their one hospitalization as a hospitalization that they can get through and then go home. But if you see it in the context of all of their other hospitalizations, I think it becomes clear, it can become clear how to proceed with treatment and discussions with families. Um, in the acute setting, I had, I had, I think, never been to a code or maybe I'd been one, to a code once as a medical student. And a code is when somebody's either heart stops beating or they stop breathing or their heart is so irregular that they don't have a blood pressure. Basically, it's a medical emergency in which you mount all of the forces of the hospital to come together to try to save somebody's life. As an intern, your job is to go to the codes, especially if you're having, if you hold the code pager, which is distributed amongst the services sort of arbitrarily. Uh, And my first day of, of intern year, I went to a code I've been to a lot of terrible codes. Probably the worst the worst one that I've ever been to I still sort of haunts me to the core when I think about it. It's not very common for a patient of yours to code. Usually you're running to some other services code. But this was a patient of mine. Uh, and uh, 
we had rounded on her maybe 10 minutes before. So we as a team had seen her and she seemed fine. And then we left the room and a code was called and we ran to the room and it turned out to be my my patient. And the thing to remember about codes is that they're... When you're doing chest compressions on a patient, you're doing it uh, in order to beat their heart for them. So you're not doing chest compressions to start their heart up again if it's stopped. You're doing it literally to beat their heart for them while you figure out what's going on. So for this particular patient, she her heart had slowed down and then stopped. So she basically had died. And then we were coming in to beat her heart for her while we figured out if we could reverse whatever process caused her heart to stop beating. And what it means if you're actually doing compressions correctly, so if you're actually pushing down and beating somebody's heart for them while you figure out what's going on, is that they were dead and then they'll come back to life. Um, And for this particular patient, um, we were doing chest compressions and she started to respond to commands and she was much more directed in her movement. So if we told her to to, uh, squeeze our hand, she would squeeze our hand. And then as soon as we would stop doing chest compressions, she would die. And it was one of the most difficult and awful experiences I'm sure that she ever had and certainly that we ever had uh, as certainly that I had ever had um, that I still think about. It makes me think a lot more about how we handle emergencies. It made me think a lot more about whether these sorts of efforts are worthwhile. And so on the acute side of things, I think those sorts of experiences definitely color an intern and a resident's experience of death on the acute side. And on the chronic side, it's all of the um, all of the people who are very sick who are coming back and forth to the hospital. Yeah. Do do such experiences like that make it more difficult for you to forge relationships with your patients or do you try at all to kind of keep things as straightforward as possible um, because I I realize the more you interact with a patient and the closer you get to them if something like that mm-hmm. occurs it can be even more emotionally daunting for you so I'm, I'm curious if that may if these experiences have made you kind of step back a little bit in terms of how you deal with your patients yeah that's a really good question there was probably a point in the middle of the winter in which I had seen so many young people pass away um, that I literally instead I don't think that my response to that was to my response to that wasn't to sort of pull away from patients but instead to just sort of to sort of fall into a deep sense of despair and sadness Um, I think you know that one of the greatest joys of being a resident is the privilege that you have of being able to forge these relationships with patients and if I didn't have that I don't think it would have been possible for me to get through the year even if those relationships were themselves very uh, a source of of a lot of pain and sorrow Um, because it's certainly much more difficult for the patient themselves than it is for me and for their families but at the same time you're I mean you're absolutely right like I I'm sure I wasn't functioning I I I went to two weddings last year towards the end of the winter and beginning of the spring. And literally, people would come up to me and I would tell them the sort of same line, which is, I'm not really good at cocktail parties right now. Like, I couldn't have normal conversations with people. I couldn't really engage in social and fun things for a long time. 
And I'm, I'm now I have sort of I think you know dermatology is a lot more uplifting. It's a uh, you can sort of help people with their quality of life, and um, it's been great to sort of interact with patients on the outpatient setting. And I have a little bit more time, and the patients I'm seeing are for the most part less sick right now. And I think that that's been very helpful. But it's certainly it's certainly a real thing that I think happens to a lot of a lot of residents and interns. And either the response is just like you said to um, sort of pull away a little bit, which can be totally is a totally reasonable thing to for uh, for an intern or resident to do, or to sort of fall into a pit of despair about how sad things are. This episode of Working is sponsored by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy, risk-free, and most of all, enjoyable. Prescription glasses start at $95, including lenses with anti-reflective and anti-glare coating. Buying glasses online is easy and risk-free. And with Warby Parker's Home Try-On program, five pairs of glasses will be shipped to you to try on in the comfort of your own home. Keep the frames for five days before sending them back with no obligation to purchase. Once you place an order, you'll have your new glasses within about 10 business days. And for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker donates a pair to someone in need. I went online yesterday onto the website, and I looked around a bit, found some that weren't quite for me, and then I finally ended on a pair, a nice cute pair of uh, square glasses with a little bit of a brown tint to them. Go to warbyparker.com working to choose your five free home try-on frames. Send the frames back, choose your favorite pair, and order. You'll get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice. Again, go to warbyparker.com slash working and get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice. Can you talk a little bit about, like, what the social life is like amongst you guys? (laughs) Um, Just because I know I'm going to bring it back around Grey's Anatomy, but, like, you are working so many hours, and it seems like you are always around the same people are is there is it true that there is a lot of like hooking up and and stuff like that going on is that is that a normal thing that happens among you guys oh my god if only we were so good looking (laughs) seriously um so so i feel like comedies often get often get this sort of atmosphere they understand it better than maybe dramas do. So in the same way that Veep is probably a better representation of, I assume it's a better representation of Capitol Hill than um, than maybe The West Wing. I feel like Scrubs is a better representation of my life than Grey's Anatomy. So um, we go out. A lot of people uh, drink, especially on Friday nights. There's actually a dedicated night for going out for beer uh, after work. Uh, and people let off, let loose some steam. Uh, and the single people, I'm sure, though I don't, I'm not privy to all the good gossip, I'm sure that the single people are all making out with each other. Uh, my particular program uh, is a lot more married and with children and a little bit more boring and subdued than some of the other programs. But I think it's really hard to date a, what I would call like a normal person. I think it's really hard to date a normal person uh, because, like you said, you really do spend so much of your time with other interns and residents and so much of your time sort of 
kind of engage with really sad or difficult issues that you want to be able to talk about with somebody. And it becomes easy to talk with your co-interns and residents about those things and create close ties. Uh, And I don't think that that can be underestimated, the degree to which this year, though the hours were hard, they certainly aren't as hard as they used to be. And they certainly aren't as hard as probably somebody who works two minimum wage jobs. And so they're hard, but it's really the, I think the emotional part that was much harder for me, especially over my intern year, um, was confronting this sort of sadness of of people and of illness. Hmm. How do you balance that out? I mean, besides talking, like like commiserating with your colleagues, like, do you also Hmm. bring it up outside of, out of, with your husband? Or is that something that you kind of just deal with on your own? Yeah, so my, I mean, my spouse is, he's a, he's a normal, as I would call him. He has a, a, a non-medical job, and it makes me, it's wonderful that he does, um, and I, I really am so happy that he does. But one of the keys to making sure that I don't sort of keep everything inside is that I had to sort of start to make a practice of talking to him every day about what I was seeing and what I was doing, um, because otherwise you like I sort of prefaced this before, you don't haven't built enough of a world for somebody to understand, and then you sort of give up on trying to explain it to them. Um, and so, um, come, I mean, there were definitely months, especially over the course of the winter, when I was on incredibly difficult services, where I came home every day and cried. And I kind of can't believe that he was able to put up with that. Um, but uh, you sort of need a space in which you can... Um, in which you can let out that emotional steam in which you can sort of in which you can sort of sit with the idea that there's a huge amount of suffering in the world and have somebody who is willing to kind of listen to that is a real blessing. What made you even want to do this and and take on such an emotionally daunting <laughs> um, career path? At some point I realized I spent uh, some time about three years out of um, college. Um, I had been a philosophy major and I spent some time out of college sort of circling around various medical things that were much more distant from the page, from the patient and much closer to sort of the public health perspective. And so I did some research and some science and some global health and some other stuff. And in the end, the things that I found most fulfilling involved actual patient contact with an actual patient. And I think it can be probably very frustrating. I'm sure there's a lot that a resident shares with a, with teachers in terms of how we sort of experience the world. So we're working kind of in these very cloistered environments. It's just us and the patient. And really, we're having only individual impacts on individual patients. And there are all these other factors that don't have anything to do with health that we have to contend with um, and that are likely driving a lot of patient sickness, whether it be their poverty or other social issues for them um, that make them sick. And that can be very, very frustrating. But I found that the interactions that I had with patients were incredibly fulfilling, regardless of how much of an impact I was necessarily having. And actually, to to be quite honest with you, I think a lot of people can come to residency or come to medicine or come to medical school and can be really frustrated with uh, the level of impact that physicians have. Um, And I found maybe it's because I sort of, I felt for the most part like the most like the, the most joy that I got was from interacting with patients that it almost didn't matter. And my hope is obviously to help patients get better and feel better. Um, but if I can have a really good conversation with a family where we sort of decide that we're 
that that or they decide that they're not going to pursue further aggressive treatment and their family member is able to have a good death, that's a really good intervention to me. Um, maybe more powerful than any of the really expensive and fancy things that we could probably do. So from that perspective, that was one of the reasons why um, I decided to go into medicine. And um, so you're in your second year of your residency. How many more years do you have left total? <laughs> so it's a it's a five year residency, um. <laughs> and that's including both the dermatology and the medical like together. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. It's exactly it's five years, which is um, I'm sort of escaping with a much short in some ways a much shorter training than a lot of people get nowadays. So a lot of people go and they do their internal medicine residency that's three years and then they do another three years of subs three or four years of subspecialty training so a cardiologist that you meet on the street has had seven years of training after medical school uh or six or seven years of training after medical school a subspecialty surgeon that you know you just happen to run into on the street has had seven years of residency and then one or two years of subspecialty service that's why Grey's anatomy is just so much fun you know because they basically never leave the hospital um so you know those folks are in they're in training for nine years, maybe. Um, neurosurgeons are the same. A family practice doctor might be in training for three years, um, but then they get a lot of their training sort of on the ground when they're actually doing the work in the community. And is there anything else that I haven't asked you yet that you'd want to tell me? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. Let me um, spend spend a second thinking. I think I've ma- maybe I've made uh, residency a lot less sexy than you thought it was before, Aisha, for which I apologize. Um, it, I'm sure that in, in, these, uh, in these halls there are people who are doing all sorts of untoward things, uh, <laughs> and there are lots of attractive residents who are making out with each other. I am not one of those <laughs> residents, but I'm sure that it's happening. Um, but I think for the most part, people... A lot has a lot has changed about residency, so people don't really spend as much time in the call room that I'm in right now as they used to. Um, and we still spend a lot of time at the hospital, um, but I, I think we have a healthier balance of the amount of time we spend at the hospital than uh, than it used to be the case. And that really that change, although nobody would probably say it out loud, has allowed physicians and trainings to have children, a lot more women to go into medicine. These sorts of uh, unofficial change, these official changes have led to all sorts of unofficial benefits, I think, for all of medicine and for, for by extension, patients. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this podcast, and you can email us at working at slate.com and dig through our first two seasons at slate.com slash working. This episode was produced by Matt Collette with an able assist from Jackson Brader. Joel Meyer is our managing producer and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. I'm Aisha Harris. See you next time on Working. If you love the Working Podcast, consider signing up for Slate Plus. Members can access bonus segments and transcripts from this and past episodes of the show. Plus, you'll get exclusive content from other Slate podcasts. So sign up for a free trial today at slate.com slash working plus. And if you're looking for a transcript of this episode and it's brand new, please note transcripts take about a week to appear on the site, which gives you a week to enjoy all those great Slate Plus benefits. So go to slate.com slash working plus to find out more. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes 
ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.